The History of Literature podcast is a member of the Podglomerate Network and Lit Hub Radio. And here, ladies and gentlemen, is the star and director of the Mercury Theater to tell you about the first presentation, Mr. Orson Welles. Good evening. There was a man called Karshinovsky, an agitator for Polish freedom in the 50s, who was exiled by the Tsar. On the journey, his child was taken ill, and when he begged an official to let him stop on his way to nurse it, the official said, not to bother. What's one baby's life among all these thousands, said the official. If it's dying, leave it behind. Luckily, this expedient was found unnecessary, and the happy ending of the story is that little Joseph Conrad Kashinovsky lived to drop his last name and to learn that careful, fortunate English which he practiced to the everlasting glory of our literature. Tonight we present you with a dramatization of one of the best regarded and most typical of the works of Joseph Conrad. The Heart of Darkness could be described as a deliberate masterpiece or a downright incantation, a fine piece of prose work at the least, its best aspects are an artful compound of sympathy for humankind and a high tragical disgust. Its successful contrivance of mood hides its craft as an octopus hides in its own ink. And almost we are persuaded that there is something, after all, something essential, waiting for all of us in the dark alleys of the world. Aboriginally loathsome, immeasurable, and certainly nameless. That's Orson Welles in a 1938 radio broadcast of his adaptation of Joseph Conrad's Heart of Darkness. Written in 1899, it didn't take long for The Heart of Darkness to become a widely read, much interpreted work. The short novel, or novella, as a haunting quality, and maybe that quality helped to contribute to the legend in Hollywood that it was impossible to film. Orson Welles himself tried it and failed. It was supposed to be his first movie. He made Citizen Kane instead. It wasn't until the mid-1970s that Francis Ford Coppola, fresh off the success of The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, adapted and updated the novella. Setting it in Vietnam, it was then that the a filmmaker finally captured the dark magic of Conrad's incantatory prose and brooding existential themes. I'm Jack Wilson. We're taking a deep dive into the heart of darkness today on the History of Literature. Okay, here we go. Welcome to the program. I'm Jack Wilson. I'm glad you're here with us today. Historyofliterature.com and patreon.com slash literature if you want to learn more and support the show. This week we're thanking lover of literature and new Patreon, David Denio. Many, many thanks to Mr. Denio. We truly appreciate your support. Mike Palindrome is going to be here in a moment. He and I revisited this work, The Heart of Darkness, it's actually a work I've returned to many times over the years. For me, it stands for something. It stands for something in my own experience, my reader, readerly experience, a work of 
strange, almost ghostly power. I get into some of that with Mike. But first, let me catch everyone up. We're going to talk about the ending here. So if you're someone who wants to read things unspoiled, you might want to pause the show and read the novel and then come back when you're done. It's actually not too long, about 100 or 150 pages in most editions. You can read it in one sitting. (laughs) That is a delicious afternoon, reading it in one sitting. Wait for a stormy day. We should have plenty of them coming up. Now that it's fall, park yourself by the fireplace. Turn off your cellular devices. Make a cup of strong tea. And then follow the journey. Follow the journey. Let yourself float along up that river. Two other works to catch up on. Apocalypse Now and the movie Hearts of Darkness, a filmmaker's apocalypse both of which are highly, highly recommended. Your mind will be in overdrive. Reading Conrad, watching the Coppola film, thinking about the differences and about what they mean, comparing it with our own situation today. Now, for those of you still with us or rejoining us, here's a bit of background to the work. Joseph Conrad was born in 1857 into what was then the Kingdom of Poland. His father was a writer. Apollo was his name, and he was also a revolutionary who advocated for Polish independence and the abolition of serfs, or the abolition of serfdom. Apollo moved the family frequently, farming the land, getting into trouble, agitating, resisting the Russian Empire. The politics at the time were very hot, and Apollo put himself right in the mix. Joseph, his only child, eventually chose exile over resistance, and he felt guilty over that choice for the rest of his life. For a while, Apollo and the family were exiled in northern Russia, and they also traveled to what is now the Ukraine and what is now Austria. A lot of what Apollo was trying to do was to find a place for Joseph, a country where he might seek citizenship and be independent of Russia, which did not like this Polish-born agitator very much. So, where to go? They looked at Switzerland, they looked at the United States, they looked at South America. Conrad, by the way, was speaking French as well as Polish. English was his third language. So now we're seeing a lot of the strands that eventually formed Conrad the writer. He's a wanderer with a strong literary heritage and a background of social reform. He's something of a man without a country, with an eye toward Europe, and South America, the last important piece of the puzzle is what he did next. At age 17, he joined the Merchant Marines, and he held that profession of sailor, eventually captain, for the next 19 years. This took him around the world on adventurous voyages, and it brought him into contact with a range of different people, and it brought him the tales that were told by the sailors and the people he encountered along the way, and it brought him his own experiences as he wrestled with worldwide questions of empire and colonialism and the merchant trade. The premise of how the world was organized, wealthy countries sailing to Africa, for example, setting up outposts, having an impact, for better and worse, mostly worse, 
believing in reform, maybe, believing in prophets, definitely. And back home, the people in increasing their standard of living without asking too many questions about how that was being done, how that was being accomplished. Conrad dug into this and into the impact that it had on the people who were involved, the lies that were told, the paper over the truth of what was happening, and he ended up creating a masterpiece. Are there valid criticisms of this book? Absolutely. Absolutely. There's a big hole in the narrative. The Africans, the African people, they're almost like props here. One can't read The Heart of Darkness without longing to know more about them, to know more about their society, how they think. One wants to spend time with them to see the world from their point of view. It would take a different novel and maybe a different novelist to do this. Conrad, for all his gifts, for all his empathy, for all his genius, did not give us that book. We have to look to later writers, African writers like Shinwa Achebe, who also wrote the seminal critique of Heart of Darkness along these lines. We have to look to writers like that for that side of things. That's going to be another episode for us, an episode for another day. And we'll also need to do another episode for the remainder of Joseph Conrad's work today. We're going to focus just on the Heart of Darkness. One more quick paragraph before Mike comes on to discuss the work and its significance. The novella was written in 1899. It's a framed story. The narrator, Marlowe, is on a boat on the Thames, recounting to his shipmates a journey he took up the Congo River to the Congo Free State. While there, he ultimately encounters a highly successful ivory trader named Kurtz, a Belgian who has, quote, gone native, end quote, and set himself up as a kind of leader. Marlowe witnesses all this along his journey. First, the futility of what the colonialist Europeans are doing in Africa, the greed that's driving them to it, the horror of the impact, the lies that entire nations of people tell themselves to make everything okay, and finally, the existential questions that this set of circumstances is posing to the individuals who are immersed in this psychodrama. There's a sense that individuals are pushed to their limits, maybe pushed beyond their limits, and the rest of us need to ask ourselves whether we too have it in us to go that far. Is it human? Is it part of the human essence, as Orson Welles put it? Would we ourselves plunge into the abyss? Are we comfortable knowing that others are doing so in our name? Are we willing to face this truth? Can we handle it? Are we willing to force others to face it as well? Or do we want to let things slide? Live in a matrix? A world without truth? A happier world? So, that's The Heart of Darkness. An extraordinary book, truly one of the greatest works of the 20th century, and we can place it there, even though it first appeared in 1899. It's hard to find a more modern and influential book, certainly not one at its length. Influential because of its themes, but also because of its general contribution to literature. It showed the way for a kind of book, an approach to literature that deepens and enriches and matures. It's an adventure story, but told in such a mental landscape sort of way. 
Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to conclude this introduction with a quote from Conrad. Then we'll have our discussion with Mike. Then I'm going to offer some thoughts on how the novella is still important to us today. We are going through some serious days here in the U.S. Call them birth pangs for something. Call them, that's scary. Call them days of reckoning. They are about the history and the future. About who we have been and who we want to be. We have our our own issues that have been concealed, that have risen up. I think of it as being like a giant squid that was right below us in the ocean, maybe flashing a tentacle now and then. But now our ship is being bumped, sometimes bumped violently, and the tentacles are emerging. They're coming up over the sides. And we see that there's a threat, a very real threat, that the ship is going to be attacked by these tentacles that the squid might latch on, crush our ship, and take us all down to the bottom of the ocean. That's one metaphor. Here's another one. We are all looking straight into our own hearts right now, our own hearts of darkness. And we need to understand what we're viewing and what we're prepared to do in response. Okay? Okay. So here's the quote, the Conrad quote. When Conrad began to write this novella, The Heart of Darkness, he described it as, quote, a wild story of a journalist who becomes manager of a station in the African interior and makes himself worshipped by a tribe of savages. Thus described, the subject seems comic, but it isn't. End quote. No, it isn't comic. No, it isn't. Hey, grown-ups, the Cat in the Hat cast is a new podcast from Wondery, perfect for the whole family. Join the Cat in the Hat and your favorite Dr. Seuss characters as they get whisked away on a new adventure every week. Fish dreams of creating his very own polite and quiet podcast. That is, until he gets a surprise visit to his Fishbowl podcast studio from the Cat in the Hat himself, and it becomes very clear that the cat has other plans for the podcast, and those plans are the opposite of quiet. The cat may be disruptive, but it turns out he's also a great help to get fish out of all kinds of predicaments. Bursting with music, silliness, and rhymes, the Cat in the Hat cast encourages us all to find fun that is funny in every episode. Sing along to new favorite songs, try your luck at titanic tongue twisters, have some fun with wondrous wordplay, and most importantly, Bring your family along for all of the adventures in the Cat in the Hat cast. Follow the Cat in the Hat cast on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to the Cat in the Hat cast ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or Wondery Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Do you remember when you first read The Heart of Darkness? I did. I uh, I read it in college. Yeah. Um, I, I read it because I felt very guilty because everyone around me had read it. I was probably one of those people. <laughs> and I couldn't. 
I couldn't take part in the conversation. And all I could, all I could do was think about the movie, which I had seen around the same time I saw Platoon and Full Metal Jacket. So yeah, I was in high school. When so you I say the, the movie, you mean Apocalypse Now? Right. Yes, yeah. I saw, I saw Apocalypse Now in high school, and I. I guess had read that it was loosely based on Heart of Darkness, so I guess a, an arrogant part of me thought I, I sort of knew the Heart of Darkness. Right. And, but when people started talking about um, Kurtz and Marlowe, you know, I knew Kurtz and Willard, so I, <laughs> so, so I felt guilty, and I, 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 I read it, and I read it in a day. My daughter was pointing out that I used to jot down. How many days it took to read a book? And Heart, of Dark- <laughs> Heart of Darkness had one day. One so. day. Well, that's good. That's good for a book. That's something I want to talk about later because it reminded me of Edgar Allan Poe's uh, description of his sort of his aesthetic principles and why he preferred short stories because they could be read in one sitting. And I did feel as though Heart of Darkness, it's just long enough, but just short enough that it's. It is a short novel, but you can read it in one stretch, and that's that's what I did this last time in reading it, and it was very powerful. It it really had an effect on me to read it all straight through. Have you ever tried that? Yes, yeah, so I reread it. No, I have, but I reread it um, last month, mm-hmm. and I was struck by how little violence there is. In the oh, book. yeah, yeah. It's very. Uh, ponderous. It's very meditative. It really doesn't have much in terms of events paralleling. The movie doesn't have much paralleling the novel until probably the end. Mm-hmm. But I, I really got the sense that Coppola understood it because he grasped the idea of the the voice of Kurtz before Marlowe Willard sees Kurtz. And yeah. so in the movie when Harrison Ford plays the voice of Kurtz, it's such a great, um, it's a, such a great scene. And they, you, wait, you mean Marlon Brando? No, no, Harrison Ford and, um, yeah, oh, sorry. Harrison Ford plays the, plays the voice of Marlon Brando, um, when he's trying to convince oh, to take right. the job. Oh, oh, plays it like on the record. Yeah. 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 He plays um, the recording, the audio it. tape. And it's something about how like a beetle is walking on the edge of a razor blade. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That is one thing that Coppola really got was that all the suspense here was in the trip to see Kurtz and that Kurtz was going to become larger than life by the end of the journey. That that really came through, really comes through in the book. It's one of the most dramatic things in the book is that suspense and that that tension. And the film really captures that well. Yeah. So let me tell you about the first time I read it. Since I was probably one of those people who was staggering around campus trying to recover from it and talking to anybody who I could find who had read it, <laughs> and you probably overheard me at you know that that was probably what inspired you to read it, so I took a course it was actually the first English course that I ever took was just a a deep dive into joseph conrad it was the whole course was devoted to Joseph Conrad, and I think I was a second year, and I was in there with all of these upperclassmen and graduate students and they seemed so much smarter and so much more ready and equipped to read literature. They seemed to already know who Joseph Conrad was, which i 'm not sure I did uh, but the first day, there were too many people in the class, and so I was really hoping that i 'd get to stay in the class and 
uh, I don't know how things work out now, how you end up getting in a course or not, but what this teacher did back then, it was kind of random and you could be cut almost for any reason or it, it, there wasn't any particular scheme or, or set guidelines for what professors would do to take certain students and not certain others. And so what our instructor did was uh, she took the class list and she ripped all the names. She just tore it up so that each line that had a student's name on it, she ripped into a, you know, a little rectangle. Mm-hmm. And then she crumpled all of them up. And then her idea was she was going to draw the names out of a hat, you know, for the people who would be allowed to stay or the people who would have to go. And I'll never forget it because as she was crumbling, you know, she was taking each each name and balling it up, wadding it up with her fingers. And as she was doing that, she looked around the classroom and she said with a complete sober face and a complete deadpan voice, Conrad would have approved. <laughs> <laughs> and it just made me think, you know, I was, it was like entering this adult world where Conrad was a serious guy. You know, he was a serious writer. He had serious things that he was tackling, serious themes. And now I was going to be entering that world where you wrestle with these difficult issues and difficult problems. And and here was this professor kind of saying, you're entering a twilight world now and you may be headed toward light and you may be headed toward darkness. But either way, we are on a journey. And that that has always kind of stuck with me. Yeah, I mean, the lack of violence in the book and allows the reader to really wrestle with why uh, Marlowe admires Kurtz. Yeah. When I re- read it the second time, I, I realized he admires Kurtz pretty early on. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's just given as sort of a, oh, he's really good at his job kind of thing. Yeah. I mean, it, you know, and, he's the best. And I, I love in the book the whole idea of, uh, Kurtz kick, kicking off, kicking free of the earth mm. and earthly concerns. and Yeah. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's w- one of the first really, really ambiguous books. And I think I read that Harold Bloom called it the most interpreted novel mm. in the last hundred years. Yeah. Yeah, that would make sense. I was just blown away this last time that I read it. I so many things struck me about it that I hadn't noticed before and just my own maturity, I suppose, gave me a different view of it. Uh, I was struck by, you seem to be suggesting this too, that the scenes are surprisingly thin. Sometimes it's just a sentence will suggest an occurrence or an incident, but they were so vivid in my mind. The the blasting of the cliffs and things like that, which... I would have guessed that that was five pages and yeah. instead I read it. It's like, it's barely in there, but, but it was so vivid. That's another thing that Coppola really gets right in apocalypse now is just the way this sort of dreamy, lazy boat will end up boat trip will end up punctuated by something very brief, but very vivid and unforgettable and momentous. Yeah. And it all kind of builds and, yeah, I mean, there the the book has. You're right about it, it just being sometimes just a single line. There's, I think there's a line about 
there was movement in the trees and there's a line about how some of the workers who have been brought from far away slaves they had fallen sick and they had crawled back into the forest to die mm. i mean it's just yeah Ugh. It, it's so haunting it is. It is. It is such a good work of literature. I think, what do you think the biggest difference is between the film, other than, you know, the, the move from Africa to Vietnam, and I guess the obvious move from colonialism and the ivory trade to the imperial adventure of, you know, I use that word uh, sardonically, uh, whatever Vietnam was, the horrible, tragic war, and just the confused nation i guess blundering its way into into something unwinnable as far as the narrative goes what did you think was the biggest difference you know i I think it's all this kind of rock star fighting which is very cool you know with with um you know robert duvall oh yeah yeah the the playmates dance a bit bit, yeah you know the i mean i'm I guess I'll have to read the novel again to see if there is this kind of contrast between London and um, the Western world and Kurtz. But I think in the movie, in their own way, you know, not to, you know, sound like a film critic, but I think what he was trying to portray is that wherever Americans are, they try to recreate America. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know? And yeah. So there's a great line. Um, that Martin Sheen says, uh, he says the war was, he realized that the war was being run by four star clowns who were at risk of giving the entire circus away. <laughs> <laughs> I think there is, yeah, those scenes that you mentioned there, you know, the Robert Duvall wanting to surf, you know, that whole almost absurd and the, the Playboy Bunny scene just being this absurd hallucinatory of scene. It, after watching Hearts of Darkness, the documentary, which is one of my favorite documentaries of all time, but after watching that, talking about how the film was made, it made me think that those scenes were kind of one vision for the movie that the screenwriter, John Milius, probably advanced. And Coppola, I think, was... Mm-hmm. also on board with it because it showed what he was interested in, which is the kind of the folly of the Vietnam War and just the absurdity of it and, and the confusion. But it also really got at what American soldiers were going through. Yeah. The funny part of that documentary is how Coppola is struggling with the ending. And John Milius had the ending where, where Kurtz comes out with his gun and fires at the <laughs> helicopters and says, I feel the strength in my loins. <laughs> oh, man. And Coppola just thought that was absurd. And it seems like it would have been a very different movie had uh, Milius been the writer and director rather than Coppola kind of rewriting some of those scenes and turning it back into, I think, a, a greater work of art. The, the thing about the narrative that I found the most striking when I was watching the movie this most recently is how uh, different it is that Willard is sent on a mission to kill Kurtz. Mm-hmm. And in the book, he's basically sent there just to, to see Kurtz. He's not an assassin. And yeah. so I actually kind of liked it. I don't know if maybe it's just that it was more appropriate because it was the Vietnam War and that would be more likely to have happened. But I found that it gave Willard's character a real uh, kind of dilemma 
and a different it gave it a different layer that I really appreciated. Yeah, I mean it the build up in the movie is is so rewarding. Mm. And then I that mean, scene where he comes out of the water. Yeah. And it's it's his face is all lit up with those colors and there's that smoke around him and everything. It's unbelievable at that moment when you realize he's planning yeah. to fulfill his destiny. It's just chilling. It's so good. The the film I, is so good. The the movie it almost has like a series of peaks, like when mm. um mm-hmm. when Martin Sheen is taken prisoner and then He's in like a little makeshift bamboo jail and yeah. they, he leaves behind, you know, in case people haven't seen the film, you, they, they should watch the film before they listen to this. But when he, when, um, Brando dumps the head of the other guy who was supposed to radio in the, the yeah. bombing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's like, oh, yeah. When I was, I was 16 when I saw that and I was, I, I mean, I just had that image of the, the head being dropped in this guy's lap. Yeah. Oh. Okay, so I have a list of questions. I thought we could run through these. I, I'm calling this uh-huh. the Heart of Darkness Challenge. Okay. So I sent these to you, and you prepared some responses, hopefully. And I am going to uh, ask you the questions and then hear your response and then add anything else if I have anything else to add. Okay. Sounds so good. here we go. Challenge number one. Summarize the novel in A, a sentence. And B, a word. Okay, so the sentence I, I wrote, uh, it's a prose poem about colonialism and individualism. <laughs> Interesting. Here was my uh, sentence. Man on boat tells story about trip he took up the Belgian Congo to find Kurtz, a rogue ivory trader who has set himself up as a leader among the natives. <laughs> so I was much more uh, plot summary oriented than you were, but that's uh, that's interesting. What did you choose for the word? Um, I wrote suffocating. <laughs> or I was going to say the end, but that's two words. <laughs> I, but I'm probably influenced by the Doors song. By the Doors the song, yeah, which yeah. is uh, one of the great songs used in a mm-hmm. film. Um, that's a great I mean, soundtrack. The way the way they Coppola used the the end, and also the Wagner and. For my word, I said colonialism, but then it's really only because of Conrad that that works. You kind of have to know that Conrad had a a very sophisticated take on colonialism and that horror was embedded in colonialism. And then I thought the other word, the obvious word is horror. Uh, But again, um, it's only because of Conrad that you could use that word and then expect it to convey something about colonialism. Okay, challenge number two. What did you find most surprising? Uh, I mean, I, I mentioned that this earlier, but how little violence there is in the mm. novel, especially mm-hmm. the way Kurtz dies. I mean, he's basically ill, and then yeah. he falls over, and then the slave <laughs> hand comes in and says, Mr. Kurtz is dead. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I had forgotten how he dies. It's almost like all of the action is kind of in Marlowe's head you know yeah. all of the, the all of the plot twists or all of the uh, all of the development I mean other than the fact that there's this great river journey but it is almost like every surprise or every twist is just something like Marlowe's changed his mind or he's realized something new 
there's very little external action that is uh, nothing is as dramatic as you know about seven or eight different scenes in apocalypse now yeah i mean it, and there's so little dialogue taken from the novel in um in but in the movie i mean other than the horror and yeah. kurtz's voice that and and strangely enough, the, the most dialogue taken from the um, the novel was um, Dennis Hopper's ranting. Yeah. I, <laughs> I couldn't believe that Dennis Hopper's lines are—I mean, that you know, Marlowe, that Kurtz is a poet, and you don't yeah. you don't speak to him; you listen to the man. Yeah, <laughs> which I thought Dennis Hopper just made up. I think he made up, and he was quoting from some T.S. Eliot poems, and it just was uh... no, no. But he—that's from the novel. Oh, he actually says that. Yeah, the oh. character, the the Russian Dennis Hopper's equivalent yeah, right. in the novel says like, um, that Kurtz is a poet. You don't you don't speak to the man. You listen to him. <laughs> it's I mean, so Dennis Hopper's lines are actually, and I remember, it, I did see Hearts of Darkness. There's that moment where Coppola asks Hopper, "Have you <laughs> have you learned the lines?" And he's like, he's obviously on something. He's like, "No, I haven't." And Coppola goes, "Well, if you learn the lines, then you can forget it." You know that that's your prerogative <laughs> to forget them, but you first have to learn the lines. He's like yeah. it's like he's talking to a child, right? Right. And Hopper's just like, "Hey, man, why don't I just you know just yeah. come up with stuff?" Yeah. He's like, "Now you're saying I can forget the lines before you were saying you were angry that I didn't have them memorized." <laughs> he's like, uh, and then that part where where Coppola is struggling to figure out the ending, and he says, "Like, I thought about you know what could I do with Brando? Would I just put him in a room with?" Hopper, crazy Dennis Hopper, <laughs> and he decides that they'd kill each other. So he he decides he can't do that. But it yeah. it uh, uh, you know, I went to see Apocalypse Now with my sister, and she had not read Heart of Darkness or seen Apocalypse Now, and she still loved the film Hearts of Darkness, and it really is entertaining. <laughs> I, I think anybody yeah. who's interested in filmmaking at all uh even if they haven't yet read the book or or seen the movie they really owe it to themselves to go check out hearts of darkness it's so much fun and there's it's so vivid you really start to feel what uh coppola was going through it sounds a little grandiose to say that he's comparing himself to the vietnam experience comparing the the experience making the film to either vietnam or the heart of darkness story but i have to say it is kind of infectious you you start to see things through his eyes and feel all of the destruction and all of the challenges that he had to go through and i was watching the film uh here in dc on the metro on my way to and from work and there was one day in particular where the the train i was watching the ending of it at like the final 30 minutes or something and the train was kind of slow and and it was really crowded, and it got stopped, and there was a uh, a long stretch where we were stopped because someone had jumped onto the platform and committed suicide, and they were doing a police investigation, and Jeez. it felt like suddenly the trip was more dangerous than it seemed before. It was more fraught with danger, and then, and then I came out, and I emerged mm -hmm. from underground, and there was this huge sudden rainstorm that was just pouring rain, and I remember mm -hmm. feeling like, I was on a journey. <laughs> kind of like when you watch, I don't know if you've ever done this, but sometimes when I watch Alfred Hitchcock films, I'll uh -huh. go to bed and I'll wake up and I'll think, 
oh, what if I go downstairs and my family doesn't recognize me and they start calling me by a different name, you know, and I'm <laughs> living this out and it, it kind of infects you. It kind of, uh, you know, changes the way you think about things like that. And Hearts of Darkness had that impact on me during this subway ride. So <laughs> my next question for you is, what did you find most inspiring? Yeah, I, I didn't know what to make of that question. You mean like something positive? Yeah. I mean, <laughs> like, I guess. like, did you did you feel um, like it was really well written, or were you admiring the style? Did you? Um, I I I like the 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 frame within the frame, the way um, you know you start on the the Thames. And, mm-hmm. you know, you have, um, characters who are just titled by their, by their job description. It's like the accountant, the director. Yeah. And, yeah. and it's very generic. And then Marlowe starts to tell the story. And I think there's, at the beginning, they say something like Marlowe grunted, you know, said something, <laughs> yeah. but that was, that was Marlowe just being Marlowe. And we didn't, you didn't even have to grunt to acknowledge what he had said. Yeah. You know, it's it, and then he tells this incredible story. It's it, it's just a perfect beginning. Yeah, yeah, and the ending has the frame as well. I mean, the famous uh, part. I think I talked about it on our great literary uh, endings show about how it has the whole visit that Marlowe pays to the to Curse's fiance, and then it has you know the the whole frame of Marlowe talking to the passengers on or his fellow travelers on the boat. Uh, you really don't get that in the movie, uh, although you get the voiceover narration, which is a nice way to use the Marlowe Willard character that film can do that it works slightly differently in the novel. Yeah. So I found something inspiring. I I was really surprised at just how well... I never really realized before how well the writing style, the narrative, and the plot points, and the descriptions mimic the experience of drifting along on this river with surprises waiting in the wilderness on the banks, and the way the whole time you're waiting and wondering, and it's suspenseful. And this could be because I read it all in one sitting. And it just felt like reading this prose and reading the long paragraphs and the way they're interrupted sometimes with a surprising line of dialogue or a a real brief but you know abrupt description of something new it felt to me like the reader is going on a journey like the one that marlo is describing you're kind Mm -hmm. of in this dreamy uh meditative state and you're spending so much time thinking through these bigger themes that I I felt, and I felt like that watching the film too, the Apocalypse Now film is you feel like the experience of watching that movie is a lot like the experience you're supposed to feel along with uh, Willard as he's traveling up the river. You see the craziness, you see the, the boredom, you see the, the, um, you know, the time that you have to observe and reflect and just uh, soak in all the craziness as you're, as he's going up the river. Um, I I just was really, I guess, inspired by how the art of Conrad and Coppola managed to mirror the 
descriptions of these journeys that they were trying to convey. Yeah, you're right. The the storytelling has um, a very controlled rhythm. I mean, Conrad is a master. He, the way um, he, he, there's just factual description for a little bit, and but then he, then Marlowe really does become very poetic in in describing um, the goings on, going goings on. Yeah, and the way that whole journey and the way the tension of it builds to what it's really taking on as its subject, which is the horrors of uh, the colonialism or war and the empire and the effects that it has on the natives, but also on the colonizers. And it's like this, this test to read the, the descriptions and to read the narrative is like a test to see if you yourself will go mad or, you know yeah. how you'll feel when you finally stare into the abyss of what's waiting for you at the end it's uh yeah. it's an incredible book there there i mean it, it, there there are things that i think Coppola, Coppola must have read it multiple times uh, there are things that you know i just draw even though there there isn't you know a lot of dialogue in the movie taken from the book i draw direct arrows between the book and the movie there's a line in the book where um that says that that is the same people who sent him specially also recommended you Mm. that that's said to yeah uh, marlo about kurtz and in the movie um there's a scene where voiceover martin sheen is looking at kurtz's dossier and he says something like you know that he requested joining the airborne in his 30s like three times before he was accepted and he goes into like his green beret past and the murders he had committed and you get this real sense i mean obviously martin sheen's character is unhinged the way the movie begins and then Mm -hmm. you you have him reading the dossier of someone who's you know unhinged also but in this very controlled what like in control of his you know his madness yeah and you know, it, I thought of that line from the book, and I was thinking, like, God, Coppola's a genius. Yeah. You know? Yeah, it really, uh, you know, those things, it seems, uh, it was kind of famously difficult to adapt, and people thought you couldn't do The Heart of Darkness on film and all of that. But you really see that John Milius and Coppola really got what it meant to set it in Vietnam and how they focused on all the right things, you know, like the way that the, the way that Willard would feel about being asked to go hunt down Kurtz. And it kind of reminded me is a very different situation, but it reminded me of when you travel and you, you find yourself, you know, I, I did some traveling in Asia and Africa and you wind up on maybe some long bus trip or something. And, you're there, and, and there might be another American who's on the bus too, and the bus breaks down, or you have some, you encounter some kind of difficulty, or maybe you're s- stranded in some little town waiting for the next car to come and pick you up, or something. And and no matter how different you might be when you're in America, you mm-hmm. have this recognition with one another where it's like, oh, you wound up here too. You know, whatever you were running from or whatever you were trying to find, 
we both ended up in this similar situation. And so in some ways you feel as if uh, you might understand that person. There's the potential to understand that person more than anyone else because nobody else has chosen to put themselves in this scenario. And it's similar for Marlo and Kurtz. You know, it's like he is basically, you know, someone who could follow Kurtz's path into madness if he chooses. And Willard, it's the same thing. You know, does he, who is he in the end? Is he somebody who's going to be loyal to, you know, the, the people who sent him on this journey, or is he going to decide that Kurtz is a greater man or has, you know, transcended the normal rules or, or does he need to die? Okay. Next question. Complaints. Um, I, I just wrote, perhaps it's too short Oh, <laughs> because, um, I, I love long yeah. works and I have the Norton critical version edition and yeah. there's a long essay on the Congo that he wrote, Yeah, um, which I, I enjoy and recommend. And there is a part of me that just thinks it could have been put in the book and perhaps given a little more, um, I mean, it would have take detracted from the the existential focus, but maybe would have made it, you know, g- given it more grounding. Mm-hmm. So, but that's just my personal preference. I mean, I I I like a five hundred page novel. Right, right, yeah, I like it even probably a little shorter. So for me, the length was was just about <laughs> right. But you know, I did find I I think a, I don't agree with a lot of the. Uh, what's been what's become very famous criticisms of Heart of Darkness in the way that it treats the Africans as kind of like props uh, yeah. in some ways, and and so the criticism that I don't always agree with is where it says, "Why didn't Conrad explore the great African civilization?" And I think that just would have been a different book. You know, I I think that is a definitely a worthy subject, and it made me want to read a book like that. But I don't think it necessarily has to be the case that Conrad has to spend a lot of time inserting that into the narrative. On the other hand, uh, there are descriptions where it, it seems clear that Conrad is really basically saying the blackness is scary or repellent. Mm-hmm. And uh, I found some of that to be jarring. And I thought even if you know, I'm not asking for 50 extra pages to really explore the inner lives of any of the native Africans, but yeah. it would be nice if this wasn't set up as such a uh, white versus black. You know, there, there's enough here mm-hmm. where we could do civilization versus jungle or familiar versus unknown journey to the unknown uh, without having to see it be sort of a uh, white is normal and good and, and black is scary and uh, terrifying. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting to read uh, Coetze's, Coetze's um, Waiting for Barbarians mm-hmm. um, next to this, because in Waiting for Barbarians, the barbarians don't have any de- 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 defining racial or ethnic characteristics, if I remember correctly. Everybody's kind of generic, but they're they're capable of this horrible uh, violence and acts, and they're 
uh, the captain. I don't think he even has a name. The captains uh, of the fortress is waiting for them to come and storm storm their settlement. Mm. Um, yeah. And it's it's done in a way that you can uh, project whatever what whatever otherness you want on the barbarians, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then it's very clever. You you're very aware of your ability to do it. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, and I've that, read that book three times. I, I, I think it's it's a brilliant book. And that gives it a little more timelessness. Yeah. You know, I think Conrad is, um, there There are parts of it that just read as being a little dated, even if it's, yeah. you know, which is which is maybe okay, since we're talking about a very right. particular period in time, but. It was um, like 1919, right? I mean, when was it written? 18... Uh, 1899. 1899, okay, right. That's like Proust. Yeah. Well, wait, what do you mean, like Proust? Wasn't Proust 1899? I don't think so. No? Yeah, I think Proust was born in 1871, so he uh, okay. He was still uh, attending all the parties that he was going to write about <laughs> later, but... 1899, I think, was the year Hemingway was born, too. So it it really uh, kind of shows you he was a forerunner of that generation. I'm, I mean, the thing I, I always, you know, I, I've read some stuff about um, Conrad, and I think, you know, when you read, a, he obviously didn't know the Native people in the Congo personally. Um, mm-hmm. And if he had had I, I don't know non-historical strong feelings like racist feelings i think he would have put that in the book he's very clever in showing the way he judges people i mean and 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 the native the the, the natives are almost the way they're depicted it, they they're part of the landscape right um yeah. so and he you know he he has to get some credit for basically his his main theme here is colonialism is built on a bunch of lies yeah you know the I whole mean, thing is this bedrock of lies and looting yeah you know the self-deception of it like he's um it's not as if you come away from it thinking isn't this wonderful that white europeans are going in and making the world a better place <laughs> right you know um okay i'm excited about this one next question sell this book to a friend if you like x and y you'll like this book who are your x and y or what are your x and y so i picked uh if you like the road and moby dick <laughs> interesting okay so what what about the road and what about moby dick um Moby Dick, I'm guessing, would be the uh, quest, the prolonged quest, the obsession of of Ahab being, uh, and the observer of Ahab being kind of like the the journey that Marlowe's taking. Is that what you yeah. have in mind? Yeah, yeah. I mean, and, and the with the road, it's the way there's such a your your the reader's mind is directed mm. at a specific task and a specific series of events. I mean, The Road is is a post-apocalyptic novel about a father who tries to take care of his son after the his wife commits suicide. A lot of people are committing suicide because there's no there's chaos and people are being eaten, there's cannibalism and so mm. 
entire families agree to commit suicide, and so the the wife commits suicide, but the 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 man refuses to, and he takes care of this ten year old their ten year old son. There are periods where you know they're safe, and it's um, there are periods where you know something's impending, mm. um, and it's very suspenseful. Mm-hmm. So the other thing I was thinking is that if if people like Apocalypse Now, yeah. And, the movie they should read the book because yeah i i feel like often there's a overlap between people who like a certain type of movie and a certain like a read a certain type of book but i feel like with apocalypse now and heart of darkness i think there is there is very little overlap they go hand in hand i really in in going through this exercise of reading the book again and watching the movie again and then watching hearts of darkness again I really wish that I had taken this as number one in the in the great adaptations podcast we did. I I took mm-hmm. The Godfather number one, and then I took this as number two. But really, it's it's hard to beat a, a film that's as good as Apocalypse Now, based on a novel that's as good as Heart of Darkness, and then as interesting as it is to see the comparisons. And it's just a great experience to read them both. If you like the the movie, I think you should read the book. And if you like the book, I think you have to see the movie. Yeah. Okay. I went a little more conventional, I think. I put uh, that if you like uh, T.S. Eliot and Graham Greene, you would like the book. <laughs> so, okay. Next one. Best sentence in the book is. All right. There are so many, but I, I had to go. They had to go with the scene with uh, the 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 heads oh when they come they come up on kurtz's kingdom and there are these behead their heads that people have been beheaded and heads mounted on on sticks yeah so the line is uh, marlo sees the heads and says after all that he's talking about the heads after all that was only a savage sight while i seemed at one bound to have been transported into some lightless region of subtle horrors where pure uncomplicated savagery was a positive relief being something that had a right to exist obviously in the sunshine Ooh, that is good yeah yeah you know the 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 other great thing about uh hearts of darkness the documentary about the film is that scene where they show the heads and how they're oh, they're yeah. actual actors who are wearing this this makeup and they're standing in boxes to crazy. to have these heads they're they're actually playing heads they were out there for 8 or 10 hours or something in the heat pretending oh. to be severed heads sitting on steps it was it's like <laughs> coppola you know i don't know that it was totally necessary to do that but it's the kind of detail that it shows you how yeah. Coppola was really going for it. Yeah, I mean, I you know when I when you see the movie, you think that they shot, they found a ruins and they shot it, and then yeah. in the in the documentary, you learn that he actually had brick flown in and they <laughs> built the temple. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. Okay, so the the my best sentence I couldn't uh, uh, like you. There's so many good ones to choose from. Is it was hard to pick. A lot of them are. The introspection, like the one that you chose, is 
is just outstanding or, you know, the way it leads to the mystery of Kurtz or the mystery within the heart of us all. And it's, it's hard to beat the famous ones, the horror, the horror and Mr. Kurtz. He did, uh, which is the way they're presented in the book. They come across as shocking. Mm, yeah. T.S. Eliot chose Mr. Kurtz. He did for his epigraph to the, the hollow man. Right. Or the hollow man. Uh, so, the one that I chose that I really liked is it comes early on. You get this description of the sunset. You're still in London on the Thames, and you get this description of the sunset, and there's a sort of scene as the lights from the ships are coming on, and, and then the sentence is, and this also, said Marlowe suddenly, has been one of the dark places of the earth. Oh, yeah. And then he goes on to talk about how when the Romans were invading that Basically, they were coming in to, to Great Britain to plunder it, kind of like, you know, the parallel is pretty obvious with the plundering of, for the ivory trade of Africa. And it just made me think, I like the way that that little passage made me think about great movements. And by great, I mean giant, you know, like big shifts throughout history and and the way that different civilizations rise and fall and and the way that they expand and contract and you know the way the passage of time makes one era's infallible civilization is another era's um developing world or whatever you would call it but th- th- basically um i just like the way that conrad had gotten that in there to kind of set us up for what he's going to be talking about which is you know, Rome is not the great empire that it once was, and and the European colonial powers may not be either. You know, that's sort of what he's setting us up for. You know, I this, there's another passage. It's not a sentence, so I couldn't pick it, but I have to read it because it's, it's something so modern. I mean, the way the description is, but he's he's talking about going along the river in the Congo, and he says, there were moments when one's past came back to one as it will sometimes when you have not a moment to spare to yourself, but it came in the shape of an unrestful and noisy dream remembered with wonder amongst the overwhelming realities of the strange world of plants and water and silence, and the stillness of life did not in the least resemble a peace. It was the stillness of an implacable force brooding over an inscrutable intention. It looked at you with a vengeful aspect. I got used to it afterwards. I did not see it anymore. I had no time. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's like, it's almost something out of like Beckett. Yeah. Yeah. I I was really struck by that on this most recent read is how modern it felt to me that it, just the existentialism of it. Okay. uh, Next challenge question. Astonish us. Tell us something that people might not know or might not have noticed about the book. Yeah, um, I I have to think that Conrad did this on purpose, but he had w- there's one point where he describes Kurtz's features as being like ivory. Oh, <laughs> yeah, and um, you know, Brando probably had the best cheekbones of any yeah. actor in film history. So that was yeah. really that was a perfect casting. Right. Even even though Brando, as Coppola said, had showed up incredibly fat. Yeah, and <laughs> and so self conscious about it, he wouldn't allow himself to be filmed, his yeah. entire body that he had to only be shown in shadow. Yeah. Okay, that's good. I had a couple of things I jotted down. I like the 
the first draft uh, or you know the early drafts of Conrad's uh, manuscript where Kurtz's name is Klein and <laughs> um, the original last words were oh the horror instead oh, of right. the horror the horror which really yeah. shows Conrad you know sometimes he seems to be wrestling with English but that to me seems like a good example of Conrad's perfect command of English, you know, his third language, but that, that the, the modification of, Oh, the horror to the horror, the horror is so good. Only someone with a great understanding of the English language would have been able to make that change. I think for the movie, I, I jotted down a few, there's so many interesting details that you learn about in hearts of darkness or in other interviews and things with, with Coppola and the actors and everyone, but I love that Harvey Keitel was cast as Willard and was fired after shooting had begun. (laughs) And he was having a problem just playing an introspective observer. And it really makes you, you notice once you, once you learn that it really makes you notice how much of Martin Sheen's acting is just him staring with these wide open eyes at what he's seeing and yeah. the way they light up his eyes, you know, they're usually very uh, brightly lit or, you know, even in some of the night scenes, you just see these big absorbing eyes of Martin Sheen. It's a great performance and it really lets you, you know, it makes him into that observer that we need to to watch the madness that we're seeing as well. Oh, and then one other thing that I I'd like to mention just because... Like, it can never get it out of my mind is that Ford Maddox Ford in his memoir said that Conrad used to come over to his house and the two of them would just sit in chairs opposite one another, staring into each other's eyes for hours (laughs) 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 and just get deeper and deeper. (laughs) You know, you know that um, Conrad came from money. Right, I was yeah. reading a little bit some of kind bio. of some kind of noble yeah. background, right? And that his his parent they he they were basically sent to a work camp for his father's treason. Yeah, uh, and the mother died, the father died, and then uh, when Conrad was sixteen or seventeen, he tried to kill himself. But back then, I was explaining this to my daughter. They didn't have exploding tip bullets or anything like that. The bullet passed through his chest, missed mm. his heart, and then went out, went out his back. Oh, he didn't die. He had depth. <laughs> this one might be a controversial uh, uh-huh. challenge question because some people object to, you know, the ranking of literature, and so with all the caveats yeah. that, you know, just like Academy Awards or something, you can object to this. Uh, you know, on the grounds that art shouldn't be judged like this. This is in the Hall of Fame. Uh-huh. It ranks just above blank and just below blank. Where do you put Heart of Darkness? All right. So I, I put it just below Brothers Karamazov. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and again, you know, I'm just someone who likes the sprawl of a long novel. Yeah. yeah. Um, and... I couldn't really figure out what went below. I mean, many books. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's, I, I almost never read short, short novellas. Right. So it, it, in that sense, it, it felt refreshing, like mm-hmm. incredibly refreshing. I mean, it, it probably is for anyone who reads it, but 
um, for someone who's used to like 500, 700 page novels. I mean, when it was over, it was just like, wow. Would you put it above Notes from Underground? Yes, I would. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I mean, maybe it's, uh, you know, when I think of the existential novels, I mean, I, I, I still prefer a book like Zeno's Conscience more. Oh, um, <laughs> it's got a I little mean, more the, humor. It's got more humor. I know that it's like 80 pages on how to stop, quit smoking. And <laughs> I know that's not everybody's cup of tea. Um, yeah. This one but, maybe has bigger themes than Confessions of Zeno. <laughs> right. Might be a little more ambitious as far as its its topic, but. But personal preference is personal preference. I'm not going <laughs> to criticize that. So I had uh, this ranks just above Magic Mountain. Uh, <laughs> I'm actually kidding. Uh. <laughs> uh, no, it's hard to decide. But I did say it was it ranked above uh, Death in Venice and below oh, okay. uh, the Metamorphosis. Hmm. Yeah, I was. Well, I, like I was that. just looking at you know short novels. Yeah. But then I thought it actually might be above the metamorphosis. I'm not sure. And but then if I put it there, then what's it below? Mm-hmm. Ulysses. Like it's you have to go to Brothers Karamazov or something. Long. Yeah. I mean, it might be the best short novel in English. Yeah, I mean, I'm trying to think of uh, short works, short great works. I mean, you know, I think of like Chekhov plays. But yeah, last challenge question. On a scale of 1 to 10, how relevant is this book today? All right, so I found this one pretty easy. I I, I say a 10. Oh, um, okay. You know, a lot of literature can be divided into whether a book that has to be written mm-hmm. versus, you know, kind of a well-written entertainment. Mm-hmm. And I think this is both. Take a book like, um, I'm trying to think of something I haven't discussed here in a while. Um, well, you, you, you th- there are lots of books that you can imagine being written at different points in, in you know, in history or in different places. And th- there is some detail, but not, it, it's not driven by a sense of time and space and history. And this one really captures so much of, I mean, you can see why critics write about this because it, it's almost like a, it's evidence of history. Mm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. So even though we've moved on, in some ways the world has changed. The you know European style colonialism is not what it was, and we're all smarter about it. You still give it the relevance because it's important to remember the historical period when those things were rampant and and what what it meant for the people who were involved in it. And I think it's, you know, you can learn, both both sides can learn from reading the book. I mean, may, maybe that's too idealistic, but yeah, like you were saying earlier, I don't think people walk away from the book thinking, oh, the Ivory Empire was, was just a great military complex that <laughs> yeah. that we should bring back. Right. <laughs> so. Okay. Well. That was great. I uh, thanks for uh, answering these questions. I think you did a uh, an outstanding job. I was expecting to 
you know, give you the usual grade, but I think you got an A plus. <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to, <laughs> you know, just thank you for um, bullying me into watching Hearts of Darkness. And I, I, I really, I, I also echo your recommendation. I mean, I love, I love so much about it, but I, I really thought it was appropriate for this episode. The, the scene where he's trying to get Brando to come up with, um, <laughs> Uh, his speech and Brando starts to he's eating dates or something he's, yeah and, and he's like kind of like looking up and he's pontificating but pausing and then he gets up and walks away toward this arch and he's muttering I can't think of any more dialogue to say I thought that was that was just that was the funniest thing right and the whole build up to it where they He's for a while. He's not going to come at all, but he's going to keep the million dollar advance. And then he oh, says, he's, he, then he says he's going to come, but he's only, you know, he's on a very strict timeline. But he gets there, and it's clear that he hasn't read the book. He doesn't know the script, and he's just he just oh, wants to talk God. about his character for days while Coppola is like, yeah. like Coppola has been there for you know months trying to figure out what to do. Yeah, and then they show Brando where he's just kind of winging it and. Uh, <laughs> It's, uh, I, I love fantastic. when he's winging it. The, the lines, and I was, it was funny because I was watching it with my wife and I was telling her, like, that's not in the movie. That's, cause she hadn't, <laughs> she hadn't seen it in a while because I think she was cringing. I was like, yeah, that's not in the movie. That's not in the movie. Yeah. Uh, well, I'm glad you enjoyed it. And thank you again for joining me on the History of Literature podcast. Thanks, Jack. So here we go. So, sign off with Mike because I knew I had a lot to say. This was right, we recorded that about three or four weeks ago. It was right in the heat of Charlottesville, which for those of you not in this country was a moment when, well, you probably saw the news footage. We had an open neo-Nazi white supremacist rally right here in the United States, complete with torches and anti-Semitic chants, and the murder of a counter-protester. This isn't new. What is new is the level of support that this apparently has, that this openly has, among people in power. That's new. That is new. We have powerful people who have been tapping into this, who have channeled it, who have dabbled in it, who have used it, but they have always denied it. They've always condemned it. They have always, before now, kept their distance from this kind of extreme racism. They've used it for fundraising. They use it for votes. They wink at it. They tolerate it. But they recognize that it's too dangerous, too outside of American norms, too beyond the pale to mainstream it. That is over. And we have hurricanes and other political tidal waves, and so already Charlottesville is being forgotten. It's being swept under the rug once again. And a Nazi or two has been fired from the White House. Think about that. Just think about that statement. My poor Uncle Fat, the World War II hero, is rolling in his grave. A Nazi or two has left the White House. So now the press appears to be moving on from Charlottesville. 
It's not part of the discussion anymore. But you cannot read the heart of darkness and not think to yourself, what is America today? What is America? And whatever you think of America, it's something we all live with, something that's in the culture and understanding of anyone alive today, is that America has been the world's superpower, one of the world's superpowers for several decades now, for most of our lives, for most of us, maybe all of our lives. If Conrad were alive Given his themes and his interests, I'm sure he'd be looking at America. He'd be staring at America very hard. So, the question I wrote for Mike was, on a scale of 1 to 10, how relevant is this book today? And in what ways? You'd heard Mike's response. And I composed my own answer. I'm going to warn you right now, if you're tired of politics or if you're not interested in hearing me discuss politics or the situation, which I think goes beyond politics, you should probably just end this one right now. Wait for next week when we'll be back to books and literature, books only, because I'm probably going to get a little wound up. It's rare that literature intersects so directly in issues of enormous consequence, but for me to read this book as Charlottesville was happening and the ugliness of everything that's been happening, it stirred things up. It stirred some some things up. So if you're still with me, if you're not with me, that's fine. If you're still with me, let's begin. As I considered that question, how relevant this book is, I decided that even a year or two ago I would have given it a 6 or a 7, but I'm bumping it up to a 10 because of recent political revelations and what we saw in Charlottesville in particular. That's how much things have changed. I don't know that we have as many day-to-day soldiers or soldiers of fortune who are working in the name of ideology or empire or colonialism today. There are some. I don't know if it's as widespread as the world in 1899, But we have our own issues that Charlottesville made clear. We're not beyond the question of white privilege. We're staring at what it means to be part of a dominant majority. Where would you set Heart of Darkness today if you were a writer? Coppola found Vietnam, but what about today? What remote location could you be in? Afghanistan? Iraq? Where does one get lost? Where does a soul get lost today? I don't know that it exists in quite the same way. That's why I was only at a 6 or a 7 before. But I wasn't looking in the right place. The idea that we wrestle with, that our role in the world forces us to consider, we Americans, who we are, and the lies we tell ourselves, that's all still there. We haven't talked about the ending too much, the ending of Heart of Darkness, but Conrad's book doesn't end in Africa. It continues to Europe, where Marlowe struggles to tell Kurtz's fiance the truth of what Kurtz was doing in Africa. Marlowe could not expose the lie. He let it continue, and all the plush, comfortable life, he lets that continue as well. It's all based on the ugliness of imperialism and the kind of conditions that let Kurtz become his worst self. All that Marlowe conceals. Kurtz's last words were, of course, The horror. The horror. Marlowe tells Kurtz's fiancée 
His last words were, Your name. Isn't it pretty for her to think that? Marlowe's trip to the intended. The fiancé reminds me of the polite fiction that people in the North, white people I mean, the polite fiction that we've been living with, that it was important to let Southerners live with a sense of honor and dignity. I think we saw where that led us, to a sense of there being aggrieved and a feeling of entitlement, that it's okay to nurse your grievances and live this kind of tribal, white privilege cocoon, that you and all your fellow Virginians could ride on Jefferson Davis Highway because, wink, wink, it's important to remember that slavery happened once, and even if it got taken away, that doesn't mean that former slaves... Descendants of slaves are as good as the descendants of the slave owners. There's still a hierarchy. That's what Jefferson Davis Highway stands for. The rest of us have been undergoing this experiment to live in a world that embraces different cultures melding together. That's the deal. That's the American deal. As we understand it, you can come from anywhere, have any kind of cultural background or ethnicity. And if you sign up for democracy and some basic principles like treating others fairly and respecting free speech and participating in electoral politics, you're in. You're part of the country, too. You're American. And we Americans can go around the world with our heavy footprint and put our military wherever and run things in our interest. And all that can be morally justified in our minds Because in the end, we're the good guys. We beat the Nazis. We run a clean democracy. We run a multicultural country. We have the moral authority to do this. Because we're not imprisoning political dissidents. We're not oppressing women or minorities. We're fair. And so we can park our ships in your waters because we know, and you know, that we run things the right way for the people. There were always cracks in the system. What I just said is obviously not 100% true. We have seen some bigger cracks more recently. We started torturing, for example, and we haven't led on environmental issues, and we wanted special treatment all over the place. And even decades ago, we were toppling more governments than we probably should have. Our motives for doing so was often personal gain, but in many ways we could legitimately say that, hey, we're not perfect, but we have some principles that are exportable, and no one else really did to the same extent, because no one else faced what America faced and treated people better. Yes, admittedly, America's commitment to its principles was flawed, but even so, we were working on it. And our commitment was as strong as anyone's. If we had problems, like segregation, we fixed them eventually. Gentlemen's agreements, we passed anti-discrimination laws. Lack of opportunity, we had affirmative action. Lawsuits to open doors for people and groups. Equal rights initiatives. That was us all through the Cold War. That was how we viewed ourselves. No one else around treated a diverse group of citizens better than America did. Sweden, Denmark, sure, lots of countries. 
Those countries were admirable. They had admirable democracies. Maybe better than America's, but this was our view. I'm, I'm just telling you how America saw itself in those decades. This is how I grew up. Our view was we had tens of millions of people who didn't look the same, who didn't speak the same native language, who had a wide range of religious beliefs, and that it was harder to do that, harder to keep a country like that together when people have all these subgroups, harder to guarantee a certain kind of collectivity, a certain kind of commitment to equality. It's a hard thing to pull off, especially in a nation of immigrants, with everyone coming from everywhere. But we were trying. That was America. That was America's view of itself in the 70s, the 80s. What we see in Charlottesville is that that didn't work. Some elements didn't or don't see America or the American project that way. They see America as being whites only or whites in power. That the whites are under siege. And that group apparently has a television news channel. Lots of radio voices echoing those views. They have people who have power. They win elections. They influence a party, and the party controls everything. And so suddenly, it doesn't look like it was the best decision to just live in this la-la land where we in the North, those of us who know better and who are telling ourselves that the problem of racism is getting better over time and will continue to get better as the old hardcore racists die off, we see that this isn't really true. There are a lot of young white nationalists out there, and they are suddenly emboldened by the political trends they're seeing. And suddenly, what we thought was taken for granted across the political system, that this American experiment, with all the money it brought us, all the wealth, all the power, all the control, well, maybe it wasn't based on the decent principles that everyone agreed upon. Maybe those principles were a facade. Maybe my childhood, the childhood of the Cold War, was just a big lie. That's what the heart of darkness is about, too, about a civilization fooling itself. Europe fooling itself that imperialism wasn't a straight-up immoral looting that damaged a lot of people, the oppressors and the oppressed. And it looks like America might be in that boat, too, so to speak. We're all floating up this river. And at the end, we're not going to find an ivory trader. We're going to find a guy in a white sheet. And we're going to have to ask ourselves if we're prepared for that dude to be killed, metaphorically. And we're going to have to face what we white people did that made someone like him possible. We need to ask what we did to create him, what allowed the forces in the white sheets to survive and prosper and get to the point where they want to march to end everything in America that embraces tolerance and empathy and equality, where they can scream slogans that originated in Hitler's Germany, for God's sake. And we need to figure out as a nation whether we want to be that person, to fully embrace what it feels like to live in that abyss, to live in that insularity and hatred 
that madness, or whether we want to do what it takes to reject it. Do we want to feel what it's like to be him and to live like that? Do we want that to govern us? Or do we want that part of ourselves to die? Are we prepared for that to happen? Are we prepared to eradicate that part of ourselves? Because we can't just live in Europe like the intended anymore, enjoying the gold that's come about thanks to ivory. We can't go back to the world where we all wink and nod at the racists in the South and elsewhere and think, well, we're all doing okay. Most people are are somewhere between doing all right and getting rich. And if those white dudes down South knock black people down a peg or two, scare them a little, make it tougher for them to vote, remind them of their place, well, that probably won't hurt me too much anyway, and I've got my own problems to deal with. Nope. Nope. That's not good enough. Not now. We have to decide if we're going to fully embrace America, the concept of America. America is a place conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Or, if we're going to essentially fight a sort of race war, a small, cramped, inward-looking America, an America where white people let Nazis do their dirty work for them, neo-Nazis, fighting their fights and insinuating their way into government. Here's something I never knew. I, who grew up in Wisconsin, whose parents and siblings and friends all went to college there, there's a statue of Confederate soldiers in Madison, Wisconsin, of all places. And hey, statues matter, okay? When I go to another country, I look at their statues and see what people, what those people in that country are valuing. If it's a saint or a military hero or a liberator or an author, whoever it is, musician, that's what that community has chosen to represent themselves. That's what they stand for. So let's not act like these are just informing people of history. The statues in prominent places are erected and continue to stand because those are symbolic of who we are and who we want to be and who we want others to think we are. That's what they do. That's the point of a statue. So, there's a statue in Madison of two Confederate soldiers, and the people of Madison are apparently planning to change the inscription in the wake of Charlottesville. And my Facebook friends, some of them, are upset. And they say, stop trying to change history. You can't erase history. Well, no, you can't. But the history is this. The history, those, that statue is not what the history was. Who wrote that history? Here's the history. The South lost. The South seceded. They left the Union because they did not want to give up the institution of slavery. Read the secession papers. That's what they say. They say that. They say that that's why they're leaving the Union. And those who fought on their side were on board with that cause. On board! That was their cause. I know there were degrees. Some felt it more strongly than others, and yeah, sure. I feel bad for some 15-year-old 
in the way that I feel bad for all soldiers in all wars to some extent. We can probably point to all wars and say that there were soldiers there who were fighting a war for reasons that weren't necessarily the causes of the people in power, the causes of the people in power. Others decide what to fight about, and often people have to sign up. They're compelled. They feel loyal. They feel obligated. Whatever. For reasons that might not be fully their own. Even so, to commemorate these soldiers as was happening in Wisconsin, state in the north that was seceded against, and to call these soldiers on the plaque, quote, two unsung heroes, end quote, that's frankly bizarre. They seceded from our country. We fought a war. A lot of people in the North died in that war. And we have bent over backwards to act like it was some legitimate, honest, friendly dispute. You know, the idea that was somehow we have football players and ESPN personalities who can't express themselves can't exercise their free speech to protest, and Sarah Palin's husband was part of the Alaska Independence Party. And that is supposed to be patriotic somehow. A party? What is patriotic about that? Criticizing your country or its leaders for what you think are its shortcomings? That's enshrined in our DNA. That's in the Declaration of Independence. Wanting to leave the country? to move your state elsewhere, to become your own nation. That's not America. By definition, things at the top aren't right. The conditions on the ground are not what they should be. Let's change them. Let's make them better. That is free speech at its most basic. But to say, I don't want to be part of this country anymore, that's your right to say, but it's not patriotic. So, how should the North, how should Madison, Wisconsin, of all places, recall the Confederate soldiers? Let's say you want to be charitable. Let's say you want to be empathetic. Let's say you want to remember the history. You want to heal and not rub it in. How about saying two lost Americans? Two Emblems of a tragedy that nearly divided the nation. But unsung heroes? Why would soldiers fighting for a separate nation be unsung heroes in the very territory that was being seceded from and fought against? That's not history. Where are statues calling the British of the Revolutionary War the unsung heroes or the Nazi soldiers in World War II? Why would Confederate soldiers be unsung heroes in the North in 2017? Let me tell you why. There's only one answer. That inscription only existed in the North because we had racists in the North who wanted it as a symbol of white privilege and the rest of us didn't feel strongly enough to upset their feelings by saying no. 
that plaque needs to go because that thought needs to go. There was a poll I saw the other day. Over 5,000 American adults polled. 16% said people of different races should not be allowed to marry one another. That number should be zero. That number should be zero percent. And anyone who says, yeah, I think they've, they sh- there should be a ban on that, they should not be allowed to call them. <laughs> Here, I'm putting a ban on them. <laughs> we should expose the hypocrisy of anyone who takes that position that people of different races should not be allowed to marry one another and who also cloaks themselves in the mantle of freedom. You're not calling for freedom. You're not in favor of freedom. If you want to block people who love one another from getting married because they're of of different races, you have something darker that's brewing inside you, I'm sorry to say. Something visceral, something reptilian, something dark in your heart. If that's your view, we have to stamp this out. We can't act like the most important thing is not to offend the sensibilities of white Southerners, good people whose great-grandfathers or great-great-grandfathers lost a bloody war. Because let's be honest, those aren't the sensibilities we're talking about. The ugliness is not under the radar anymore. We can't pretend it's a tiny minority of fringe voters and a larger set of people who kind of agree but would never let them go too far. It's gone too far. Those views are front and center now, exposed in all their ugliness. And if the party that harbors the people with those beliefs, the party that incubates those beliefs... If that party doesn't reject them like an organism fighting off a disease, if they let them continue to infect their party, and if the rest of us go along with it because we think the two-party system works just fine for us, it's worked in the past, and it keeps the stock market happy or the corporate donors happy or whoever the hell the Democrats are listening to, because it sure isn't the people, sure isn't the constituent parties of the, the subgroups of the Democrats, If we all just kind of go along with that and tell ourselves it would be nice to get back to unity where we're not arguing all the time. It would be nice to have a regular old Republican in office because we know that deep down the Southerners are embarrassed by their racism. And we recognize the Republicans, hey, they're just doing what anyone would do, right? They've figured out a strategy, Southern strategy that they need to draw upon that racism to get votes. They, they've they got a attempting set of beliefs to stir up whenever they need to keep people in their place. And if we think, well, what can they do? Those nice Republicans, they've got it tough. They're trying to pass policies that will hurt most people, so they need to be able to fake and dodge and weave and smile because they're all just our daddy. The Republicans are. And who wants to confront daddy and tell him he's a racist? If we do that, 
if that's our approach, if we take that mealy-mouthed path of let's stop arguing and focus on real problems, then we don't have the America that stands proud on its principles. We'll have fake principles and a small racist core clinging to power and we'll all end up dead. A dead empire. A dead society. Mr. Kurtz, he dead. That will that will be us. Poe has used that line. T.S. Eliot used it as the epigraph to his poem, The Hollow Men. Well, we have a lot of hollow men right now. And America, it dead. That's next. Potentially. We will see. Okay, that's it for this episode of the History of Literature podcast. Whoa! Exhausting. I care about the world. I'm sorry, people. I know, I know. Let's just leave things there. Let's just let that one stand. That beautiful book, Shimmering in the Twilight. Is it dawn or is it twilight? I guess we'll see. You remember how The Hollow Men ends, right? The Eliot poem. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. This is the way the world ends. Not with a bang, but a whimper. Eliot had his problems, but man... What a poet. We'll need to do an episode on him soon. My thanks to Mike Palindrome for being there, my loyal friend in literature, and for joining me today. We'll be back soon. I'm Jack Wilson. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>